giving a shit about people is going to be my butter and sugar. Welcome to Authority Issues, a podcast about leadership management and wondering if I have enough pairs of socks. I'm Rachel Perkins, aka Pie or Pie Bob. I'm into words, operations, cheese and whiskey, and of course, leadership. And I'm Kendall Miller. I'm pretty sure I'm not doing this right, but there's only one way to find out. And for the record, I have enough socks. Oh, well, that's maybe where that's where my socks are. Um, today on the show, we're talking with Johnny Sheely. Do you have my socks? Uh, engineering manager at Fanatics. <laughs> Hi, Johnny. Hey, how's it going? And is that is that can... part of your job title, <laughs> Johnny Sheely? Do you have my socks? Engineering manager at Fanatics. Well, I'm sure socks are involved thing, somewhere. <laughs> the one thing that's important to to call out here is that Kendall has the appropriate amount of socks for him. How many socks is that, Kendall? I don't actually know because I basically never wear them. I think I own like <laughs> yeah, four pair. Because yeah. you could be down socks pie and Kendall doesn't necessarily have them. I've seen this yeah, man walking in bare feet in snow. Yeah, he's a bit of a mountain man, I understand. Yeah. <laughs> so now that we're done talking about socks, which I, I admit is entirely my fault, um, we can come back to this. We, we probably will, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. I'm making it difficult for you, Rachel. Get started. <laughs> Please tell us a little bit about yourself and your path to leadership. Oh, gosh. Um, so I'm on the cloud team here at Fanatics and have basically wormed my way in by being dissatisfied with all sorts of different things that are either how how people are growing or how technology is serving us. And I joined Fanatics as an architect and really wanted to work on all of the things and um, wound up meeting people on all sorts of different teams and basically got the impression that it would be really cool to be able to help folks connect dots in ways that I got to by interacting throughout the org and, um, kind of just lucked into it where my initial role as a manager was um, building out our CMS for a new platform and we hadn't had a team there. And so it was kind of a wonderful thing of, hey, go do basically lead engineer role as well as building a team and kind of that awesome platform that a lot of folks seem to jump off with. And from there, I've hopped around to a few different places and ultimately wound up really uh, dissatisfaction is kind of a, a theme with me. Um, <laughs> and I, so I, I keep on oh going, boy. hey, there's a problem. I'm not happy with this part of our tooling or this part of our platform. And so ultimately that's brought me to our cloud team where we, we serve. Because um, everyone hates around, like, cloud. It, you know, it's... <laughs> It's all these old men yelling, and it's this weird <laughs> thing that none of the tools are great. Everything is dying. And it's ephemeral. So, yeah, so I looked out. And I'm over here. <laughs> yes, let's do that. <laughs> that sounds perfect. Just want to make sure that I'm saying back to you what I think I'm hearing you know, for clarity's sake. <laughs> yeah, perfect. So, so it sounds like you've had a lot of uh, a lot of opportunity to affect change and and work with things that people are typically dissatisfied with at Fanatics. But what did you do before that? How did you get into engineering or engineering management? Yeah, I know a little oh. bit about this story and I, and I want you to go all the way back because it's a great story. See, I do not know most of the story. So come on now. So 
Yeah, I've got a bit of an interesting background where, so in high school, I actually was creating blogs and um, all sorts of weird interactive DHTML and JavaScript stuff in the mid nineties and um, somehow it turned staying up until four in the morning into some sort of passable knowledge. And I went to school for electronic media, art and communication, which I think I took one programming class and I had zero real engineering background until an internship that I had in college. Wait, and did they call that Emacs? It, it actually went by EasyMac um, oh. because so many people from quote unquote real engineering degrees would have a rough semester or year and then transfer into EMAC just to graduate. So <laughs> okay. a, lot of, a lot of pride in my alma mater there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, sorry, keep going. Yeah, so I, I graduated with this this degree that's effectively like art and my concentration was video production. And then I moved out near Kendall and I was actually driving a bus in Breckenridge for a year. And this is the fav- my favorite part of the story. It, yeah. it was pretty awesome. Like you have yeah. no idea how many people just love a bus driver showing up, especially at like 10 o'clock at night in a ski town. It's like negative 10 degrees out. They're the happiest people to see you. <laughs> so, yeah. Job satisfaction. Yeah. yeah. Oh. Um, but yeah, my, my school wasn't exactly cheap. And my brother was living out in the Bay and decided uh, to share with me the little nugget of wisdom that perhaps if I move to an area that's a little bit more related to things that I'm good at, like, not that I was bad at driving buses, um, at least according <laughs> to him, uh, you know, there, there were a couple of accidents, so I, I don't know. But um, yeah, he basically said, come on out to the Bay and um, see if you can live with us and try to pay off your school debt a little bit faster. And it was kind of a very sensible argument. So I, I drove out here and I wound up actually getting a job at eBay working on um, their internet marketing team. So huh. all sorts of keyword bidding on different stuff on Google, Bing, Yahoo before they were separate. And then when they separated again or whatever happened there. And at eBay, I met actually a lot of the people that I work with at Fanatics now. And they were kind of this radical little group using PHP and Apache where the rest of eBay was on Tomcat and all sorts of really heavyweight Java stuff. And it kind of gave me this very different perspective that I leveraged to jump from team to team at eBay. So after internet marketing, I wound up working for the buyer experience VP on a prototyping team where we completely revamped the search results page. Then I moved over to Red Laser and was working on some mobile apps that you'd scan barcodes and see if the the price that you'd get at a store is cheaper than on eBay or Amazon or something. And then I wound up working on our retail innovation team there where we partnered with Nordstrom and Rebecca Minkoff to build these magical fitting rooms that you would carry garments into and they would light up the uh, products that you were holding would show up on the screen. You could order them in a different size or with champagne. And it was really cool because we were working with like, hey, hook me up. I want that champagne with champagne. Like what what does that mean? 
So <laughs> you'd go into what would look like a regular fitting room and the lights would automatically turn on. There'd be a screen behind the mirror. So you'd actually see your inventory and be able to tap on the screen to communicate like, hey, this, this fits a little poorly or I, I think I want to try these pants that you're recommending or this purse that you're recommending does go with this shirt. So let me see that together. And that was just probably the most amazing thing that I've ever done, getting to work with all these different vendors from like the people producing the touchscreen units in Korea to getting to actually be in the Rebecca Minkoff space when there was like a hole from the third floor down into the basement in the middle of uh, like New York City. It felt like being in Home Alone 2. You know, he shows up at his uncle's house and there's just like yes. nothing there. <laughs> And I was like, oh, cool. There's like rebar sticking out of the, the floor 20 feet beneath me. Um, oh. I'm going to type on my computer here so I don't fall and die. <laughs> <laughs> so it really does sound like a lot of what you've done has been sort of the, the connecting uh, communicator or the glue of, of, uh, of projects that involved a lot of different kinds of technologies and, and, uh, and skills. Is, would you well, say that's a good characterization? And retail and tech specifically, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that one of the the things that is very common for me is that I'm not actually that strong of an engineer, but I really like to throw myself at a problem again and again and again. So if you tell me that there's a new challenge that people have struggled with that I'm probably going to fail at, I am likely to run at it full tilt and like knock myself out and go, all right, maybe a little bit different <laughs> and try so again. Wiley Coyote style, <laughs> perhaps with Basically. a little more success. <laughs> yeah, I, I think if you were to compare the two of us, I might have marginally more success than he did, but I've also fallen off of many cliffs, so I wouldn't disparage him too much. <laughs> well, I'm going to get a recording of the Meep Meep and see what happens. <laughs> so, I'll just uh, running. Yeah, well, then how did you go from from eBay? How did you end up at Fanatics? Like you said, a lot of the people at Fanatics work there. Did they did they hire you away, or did, how did you get lured into Fanatics? Yeah, that was a really funny conversation where the CTO at Fanatics today was my director at eBay, and we only overlapped there for about six months. But he had a really really significant impact on me. And he was one of the mentors that I would be constantly reaching out to of, Hey, my gut's telling me this, give me a different perspective on that. How can I work through this sort of thing? And I actually came to meet him at the fanatics office in San Francisco. What was it? I think around five years ago now, maybe four and a half years ago. And I was going in to have more of a mentoring session in my mind. It was like, hey, I've got this problem. Can you help me work through it? And he basically kicked off the conversation with, how do we get you working at Fanatics? And I was like, whoa, my mind is blown. Like I, I'd never had someone who actually wanted that from me. And so I, I actually was just kind of aghast at first and um, had no reaction. I'm not really the greatest verbal communicator. <laughs> So <laughs> after Welcome that, thing, I was like, yeah, yeah, this is a, a great medium for me. Uh, 
so, would interpret so it just like stared at warrior it. Warrior speed, like like what should we be doing if not talking? I think it's interpretive dance. Oh gosh, no! Actually, my wife, um, the thing that got me like absolutely committed to my relationship with her was early on when we were messaging back and forth on Tinder. She said, "I, I hate to dance. I don't ever do that," and. In her mind, she was making a joke, and I read it completely as concrete, serious fact. Like, awesome! If I marry this woman, I will never have to dance oh, ever. And smash cut to today, where even as I'm talking about this, I'm sweating a little bit. Like, oh, I don't like moving my body in front of people. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, no, thank you for the interpretive dance offer, but I think I would. Um, <laughs> Uh, I'll stick with the the awkward talking that I'm managing. Right now. <laughs> there you, go. you could stand up and hold signs, you so, know. Like, anyhow, mm. uh, yeah. So, so this, this I, I do. I want to get back to this theme that you're you are um, you often enjoy being the this the part of the project that kind of connects a bunch of different technologies or different groups of people working together. Uh, did would you say that's true? Because I, I don't know that I heard you like, whether you agreed or not with that. Yeah, totally. And so that was actually where I had this conversation with my CTO and he was like, you're uh, really skilled at these different things. Let's have conversations about where you could fit in. And um, I talked to VP of engineering at the time and the chief architect and ultimately wound up in a place where the conversations with the architect were phenomenal. And he's one of the people that I love the most at this company. And the stuff that he was describing was basically, hey, you're going to be the weird, stretchy, <laughs> like <laughs> the, the Gumby between the new systems and the old. And there are all these different things that we can unlock for the business that are going to challenge people and, and be very new conceptually. So how does that feel? And I was like, uncomfortable, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> you specialize in being uncomfortable for, uh, for profit. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a weird thing, especially because what I've been learning about myself is that I'm so used to discomfort that when I'm actually feeling real discomfort, I don't know it until after the fact. And so my reactions are a little wonky sometimes. Awkwardness is a service. I'm not sure. uh, I'm having trouble just parsing that you're so used to discomfort that when something that's actually discomfort, like uncomfortable, it, 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 expl- explain what you mean by that, Johnny. So like, you know, um, at, at least for me, I've got a very strong impression of what like a professional football player or someone who played D1 football in the NCAA looks like and their ability to just be like, oh yeah, someone just hit me in the leg with their helmet super hard, but there are three plays left. I got to get up and get back on the field and be ready for it. And then they like move on from that career, but they still have that tolerance built up. And so it's kind of this weird, like I, I feel as though I'm so used to, like on the Rebecca Minkoff project, I was working 22 hour days. I was in that space where people were actually like welding and painting and doing all this manual labor around me. And like, it was just unnerving and I just had to block it out. And so now, especially as a leader with all these different things where people are looking for help or different teams are depending on mine and 
sometimes it's like, oh, no, 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 I, I can handle that level of noise and discomfort and uh, whatever negative feelings are going on. And sometimes I go, oh, I've been realizing that I've had an uncomfortable feeling in my gut for two weeks now, but I'm just so used to feeling uncomfortable that it was like, yeah, yeah, you can take it. Keep going. Oh, gotcha. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's, that's, that's interesting and kind of, kind of sad. It's not really a skill set you want to have, right? Comfort with the it's, uncomfortable. It, it's an interesting thing. I've definitely been dancing around how much of that is good. Because at a certain level, like, you know, progressing in your career is all about being able to absorb more, right? And being able to sort of more rapidly adjust to changing, challenging situations and, and handle stuff. But it's also sure. like you need to know when you're overwhelmed and if you're drowning. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay. Well, so uh, speaking of being overwhelmed and drowning... Um, what what's what's a leadership issue you're you're dealing with right now? Is there anything you can share? So I, I think that one of the major issues that we've got as a a tech organization at Fanatics is that we struggle with the the balance between a tech organization and a retail organization. Sure. So if we deliver the right things to operate an e-commerce or a, a set of e-commerce sites, um that's hugely important and it can often come down to customer facing features and our ability to get you know some sort of sports product into the hands of a fan and there's this sort of gray area between the customer experience and the hardware that we're leasing from AWS where there's a lot of different design and actual implementation work that needs to happen there. And what I had thought was sort of a simple problem of people just not being aware or understanding what the cloud actually looks like. It's turning into me understanding much more about how we communicate um, what capabilities different products and teams and people can provide and are responsible for. So in the beginning of my time on the cloud team, I felt like there is just a lot of operational work that was being funneled our way that was because teams didn't want to take the time to understand um, sort of basic, in my mind, concepts of AWS, like S3. You need a bucket? Like, you can probably go and create a bucket. And now that I've been on this team for about a year, I'm understanding much more that it's not just that there's a sort of simple implementation that people could be doing, but really there's a lot of disconnect between how do I deliver this feature and how do I get technology supporting it? So um, it, it's been this really interesting evolution to see how we can educate both our fellow engineers as well as folks on the product team and the business to better understand like, Hey, yeah, I could get you like, you know, a Ford Escort tomorrow, and that could literally take you to the place that you want to go. But based on where I think you're headed from there, would it make more sense for you to wait a little bit longer and I could get you a Porsche? So there's a lot of um, 
selling and being able to communicate much more effectively about the investment in the future, if that makes sense. Yeah. So this idea that uh, you, first of all, you're like, this is not, why aren't you doing this for yourself? It's not that hard. And then you evolved to, well, maybe I have to ask the right questions about what it is that they are trying to achieve with what I'm, you know, what, what we can offer them. There's a lot of like iteration on, well, I don't know, they're just straight up stupid. No, wait a minute. They just don't know what is available. And then I know what's available, but I don't know what they want or what they need. And you're going back and Absolutely. forth with those things. Yeah, it seems like, you know, it seems at a high level, like, well, this is a pretty simple problem. You find out what they need and you give them what they need. But it's never that easy in real life, especially not with provisioning of resources. So what do you, how are you, how are you iterating? How are you implementing a solution to this? So I I think the, the most interesting aspect of this is how I keep on uncovering layers of how it's me. Like everything that I'm finding as a problem is actually me. Um, there have been all these really fascinating podcasts that I've been listening to, especially I think we've talked about the Dave Chang podcast. And mm-hmm. I love how they're having the same exact conversations. It's, it's like listening to an engineer who became a manager, but they're talking about making food and then going to run a kitchen. And they're like, you can't cook the food anymore. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, that's exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> like if I were doing this myself, uh, yeah, can't scale. So well, um, it also sounds like yeah. a lot of the tensions are the fact that on the one hand, you're a technology company and on the other hand, you're a merchandise uh, or, or retail company. And like the two's priorities and, and even where they meet, you know, isn't always neat and clear. Right. Like like somebody goes and finds out something that needs to get done and it's, you know, what's needed on the merchandise side isn't necessarily doesn't necessarily directly translate to the tech side. I mean, is, is that part of the tension or not really? Absolutely. And, and that's where the importance of that communication and being able to say, like, it may not be this week that you get your thing, but if we get it to you next week and then it's going to be an implementation that's actually leveraged by more and more things so it's a multiplicative effect would that be okay for you and in the the past like when i i joined the company we had a very small team in the bay and there is a lot more in jacksonville and um there is a very different company culture and now we still have the the need to be really focused on what we're going to deliver for the holiday season and how we're going to ensure that everything is still resilient and and whatnot but we've got much better conversations about like, hey, I hear what you're looking for, but I think that we can actually provide that and more if we take a slightly different tack. Um, And that's been a really interesting transformation for the tech org and the the company overall. Yeah, that's really interesting. And, And you feel like some of this is a change related to you figuring out your part in that? Yeah. So I think that the thing that made me a very successful engineer, as Rachel was talking about, is I love that glue aspect. I like being able to take like Legos and Transformers and mash them together. And somehow you've got a new toy that's more fun and cooler than the two were individually, but no one in the past had ever thought to combine them or been successful in it. And a lot of that was sort of coming back to my football analogy. Like 
I would be the person that would be on the field, like running a play over and over and over again and just not letting myself fail. And that is sort of a, a wonderfully terrible experience. So I feel like there are a lot of leaders today who are talking much more about work-life balance and how you gain the experience to be successful without working like 80 hour weeks and throwing your life away and not having mental health and, and whatnot. I absolutely <laughs> fixate on that now. And I realize that my pattern as an engineer of not ever wanting to fail makes me a horrendous leader when that comes out. Mm-hmm. It's just awful. I can definitely relate to that. I'm, I'm super risk averse. Uh, and I feel often conflicted between this might work, but it might also fail terribly. And I don't want that to happen. And I almost invariably go with the, I'll go with the path that I'm familiar with uh, that I know is going to solve this problem um, rather than experimenting. Uh, it sounds like you maybe got some advice recently or that you you kind of developed some sort of um, philosophy about this that you didn't have before. Do you, would you say that? I think so. I, I think that I'm kind of always searching for signal and meaning. I'm, um, that that's part of the other thing that I'm definitely struggling with where external signal means so much to me and I'm very interested. I, I wound up on the cloud team because I want engineers to be happy. And so I love the idea of building a better platform and tools and seeing how powerful people can become, mm-hmm. but it's sort of the worst because then when people struggle, I'm beating myself up and going, oh no, how could this be? And it comes back to that feeling. Whereas an engineer, I would just go and smooth that out, like mm-hmm. <laughs> well, going back out to the wood shop and planing. And this this lesson that you're learning around this, Johnny, is it is it a lesson you feel like you've learned? You feel like you're going to be learning the rest of your life or somebody has been telling you for forever and it's just now clicking or where are you kind of in this realm of figuring this out? I think that I'm sort of on um, one of the initial curves on a a bit of a like sine wave where I'm realizing now that along with my dedication in the past, I've gotten pretty far by having loosely defined systems based on intuition where to continue to progress, I need to more explicitly define them and ensure that I'm operating within them. So like as an engineer, it was really easy for me to say, I know what the output from this program needs to look like. And I can just sit here and sort of throw different code at the problem until it looks the right way. You can't really do that with people unless you don't view them as people and you're some sort of awful, It tends to be destructive change. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You can brute force it with code, but you can't brute force it with people more than once. Yeah, Yeah. I almost wonder if in a different kind of industry... If you could, you know, like, uh, I mean, I'm not saying you should in any situation. I'm just like, you know, when I was a waiter, right, at a at a small restaurant, there's just constant turnover because, uh, you know, it's really hard to keep relatively close to minimum wage workers around, right? So you almost could just just decide, hey, with person A, I'm going to try this, and with person B, I'm going to try this. The problem is, even when you come to find out that there's trends 
you know, people aren't computers and, and maybe you figured out a thing that works 70% of the time, but it's not going to work with everyone. Uh, which is, which is interesting, right? Like I put this in, I get this out. Uh, and maybe you get really good at that. And then you hire somebody that is different than you've ever seen before. And you throw up your hands. And, um, <laughs> you just make it so sound so Machiavellian. <laughs> Well, like, well, I'm going to experiment on my customers until until they catch me. <laughs> I'm just saying it's it's a thing you could do, but in our industry, like you know, people are well enough paid and employable enough they can just jump ship if you decided you were going to treat them that way, right? Like, hey, thanks for coming into work today. I'm going to try you know mental warfare with you to see how that works with you today. Uh, people that explains wouldn't put up so with much. Yeah, right? <laughs> so that sounds like part of the industry I'm not super interested in, <laughs> but I, I do think that what you're pointing out is actually very valid. Like we don't have any idea how a person will react to something. Like you may have some foundational understanding of, oh, this is Susie and she generally takes input like this and she's working on this stuff and that should be cool for me to approach her with this sort of a problem to tackle. And maybe she reacts in a completely different way. And you're like, whoa, that really was an experiment. And I just got different feedback than I've ever seen before. And I need to now return to the beginning and start the cycle over again with what I've learned from that, Mm -hmm. which is sort of how I operate. But in the past, I haven't been as systematic about it and really, um, what what I've been learning recently is how just by being more explicit and concrete in how you define your behaviors and the framework that you and the folks that you're working with operate in, it makes everybody a lot better and it's a lot easier to know what rules are are there and what guardrails. Like people can still go around my guardrails, but if it gives them better opportunities to to understand where where I operate best and the same for, for me to understand where they operate best, then at least it's not a complete experiment, but it's got some sort of definition. This is kind of like, I mean, this is sounding more and more like what the, you know, the majority of those team building management, uh, you know, like HBDI survey type things are to give you an idea. If you share them with your colleagues then you can kind of get an idea of where each of you go in, in different times of stress or whatever. Uh, those understanding that those seem to be a shortcut to, or at least a, you know, some somewhat of a shortcut to understanding what is you're describing, how people respond, what their inputs and outputs might be in different situations. Uh, but, totally. Yeah. Well, um, so, we, oh, go ahead. Ken. Well, I, I wanted to ask, uh, you've been in this for a little while now, Johnny, what's, what do you, in your opinion, what separates a junior leader from a senior leader? Comfort, I think. <laughs> comfort with I others really or comfort like, in the role? What do you mean? I, I think comfort with themselves. The, hmm. the biggest thing that I've noticed um, as I look throughout leadership at this company and others and the different directions that I've seen people push it's it's really this sort of ability to exude like yeah we're we're in a challenging situation and I've been through this before so I know that we're not 
in any danger. We're going to strive to do the best and things will, will go wrong. We'll survive it and we'll continue to strengthen our team and our, ourselves individually. And um, I think that one of the major struggles that I had and what I've seen others with is um, this lack of comfort where like we were talking about everything needs to succeed. You can't fail and it has to be um, something where you set out with a goal, you hit that goal, and then you're continuing down that path as fast as you possibly can go. Or you're so concerned about actually hitting the goal that you're paralyzed and you don't know which move to make because they all seem scary and you're not going to be able to balance them in the right way. And so... so Sorry. So comfort, so the level of comfort, a lot of it has to do with comfort with uh, communicating potentially uh, negative news or making a choice that could lead to something dangerous. Is yeah, that what totally. you're talking so about? Okay. You've got a stellar junior engineer who's worried that they're not going to hit a deadline. It's like, so what, what can you do? Like, you're not getting fired over this, right? Like, how, how can we work within the constraints that we've got and be able to modify the variables in this equation to make it happen. And, you know, if we screw the pooch and wind up having to undo something, okay, that's not anything that is new to this industry, for sure. Mm -hmm. Like you look out there and there are so many different mistakes. And also like on, on the flip side, the comfort with having those tough conversations of, hey, maybe this is the one screw up too far. And you're just not being able to, uh, you're, you're just not operating at the level that we expect you to. So how do we actually make that change happen? So mm-hmm. I, I think that there's a lot of, um, in, in the initial few years, at least for my management path, it was sort of hyperbolic, like very extreme, this needs to get done, or I need to really care about people. And over time, it's been a uh, more nuanced, yeah, we need to care about each other and get things done, and it will be okay, and people will ask more of us, and, and, and. <laughs> <laughs> so it's more of a balance rather than swinging to one extreme or the other. Well, yeah. yeah. And your ability to, to... Oh, go ahead, Rachel. You know, I was just saying, your ability to push through and, and brute force and work too many hours and stuff, that's one end of the extreme, and... Uh, the the balance of life uh, and work and your friends and your health and your mental health is the other end of that. Uh, so just wanted to make that comment that you uh, you were talking about extremes and you started out in one end and now you're heading to the other end. Um, yeah. 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 That's interesting. And, and also sort of seeing, I mean, I think some of the comfort you're talking about is the experience around <clears throat> This, it, this is not going to be perfect and we're going to be okay anyways. And having that demeanor, having that attitude, having that, you know, drip down into your reports uh, is some of what you're talking about, which is interesting. Um, it seems like maybe when you were in college dead up to your ears and driving a bus in Breckenridge, you were already learning some of that. Like, hey, this isn't perfect, but it's going to be okay. I can go s- snowboard today. Yeah, you enjoyed it. <laughs> oh, God. I, I struggled with that so much. When when I was driving a bus, I would wake up at two in the morning with nightmares about getting into an accident or 
even just driving my route wrong. Like there were, you know, people who lived in that town that were making minimum wage and depending on me to get them to work on time. And there were some stressful interactions and I would hold myself accountable. And that's definitely an area that I've, I've had to do a lot of work. And I think um, that that comfort is not universal. There are definitely areas where I feel very comfortable screwing up a, a technological thing an implementation or, you know, messing with um, something that may, may impact the business, but I am not comfortable, uh, you know, impacting people in the wrong way. And that has definitely made me much more cautious about what I do and how I, I approach different things there where I think that's where I have to be clear. Like, I don't think that I'm a senior leader yet. Like, I've not screwed up enough and I don't have the tool set to really consider myself there. Mm-hmm. Okay. Do you feel it? So you feel like your relationship with authority is changing or, um, and, and, you know, to, to get into a question that we asked just about everyone, how do you feel about having authority over the people on your team? And how do you feel about uh, your leadership having authority over you? Oh, it's so gross. <laughs> I feel you. the, the power um, that, that exists in companies is a fascinating thing for me. Like I, from my, my early days at eBay, I was like, I see how cool it is to be a director or a VP and to have hundreds of people rolling up into your org and how you can affect massive change for a business or for people. And so it's, it's definitely an area that I'm really interested in learning more about. But it also comes with this weird anti-authoritarian um, or anti-authoritarian sort of bent where while I was at eBay, I was really unhappy with a number of things or dissatisfied in the culture. <laughs> and I wound up creating like this, this group that just put on lightning talks and I didn't get approval from anyone. I didn't want any of the core eBay folks involved. I wanted like junior engineers and people who weren't working on the main pages so that people actually saw what it was like for the folks that aren't working on the main bread and butter that eBay saw day in and day out. Mm-hmm. So I've, I've definitely had to learn to turn that off a lot and to focus much more on like, Hey, what's the best compromise that I can come up with? Because my initial reaction is almost always, Nope, I can do that better. And then I have to be like, shut up. No, you can't. (laughs) (laughs) The swinging wildly between, oh, I have nothing but failure. And oh, no, I could totally do this better. Uh, Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh (laughs) I kind of want to go back to, Uh, go ahead, Kendall, because I've been talking a lot. No, well, I mean, if you have a follow-up question, go for it. Well, I wanted to go back to to this idea that, that you're... You, you think senior leadership, so you're, you don't consider yourself a senior leader yet. Um, and one of the things that you have difficulty with is uh, you're, you're now you're now able to make decisions that might be dangerous or might be uh, um, bad for the business if they fail, if something fails. But you you can't you have a lot of harder time affecting people and that their lives and having and that the repercussions of what you might do affect uh, human beings. And I feel as though one of the things that senior leadership in large corporations does, whether they have to or not, is up for debate. But I feel like they have to distance themselves somewhat from the larger scale, like being a general 
in the, you know, in a military uh, organization and having to make decisions about people's lives. Uh, and if that is necessary, then you have to sort of distance yourself from that. Do you think that is something that senior leadership has to do? And that's one of the reasons that you're not a senior leader yet? Or is that something that had occurred to you before? Wow, that is a tricky thing to have to apply to myself. I'm not entirely sure. I think that so I, I just started reading Trillion Dollar Coach last night and what you're touching on, they mentioned right off the bat and um, it, I believe Bill Campbell called it dispassionate toughness. And I was reading that and going, oh yeah, I can totally understand the coach that like cares way more about his players' uh, academic standing than their athletic prowess. And at the same time, I also feel very comfortable in some cases with that sort of dispassionate ability to say I have to do this for the greater good and this is going to feel crappy in the moment but um, I, I think that probably a major piece that I need to fill in for myself to continue to grow as a leader is when to turn that switch on and off and to have comfort that I'm doing it for what uh, how, how do I say this what are subjectively objectively right reasons mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> so it's not like an emotional thing but it's my opinionated view based on some sort of data mm -hmm. yeah because like what you just scenario you were describing i don't know that this was from the book or just from your own experience as a student athlete but the the reason that the coach could tell you uh you know could could be leaning on you would be that they care more about the performance of the team and their you know their uh, their coaching history than they do about your your uh, your educational career as well your academic career uh, so it could just be in the wrong direction and still be dispassionate toughness so the idea that yeah. you need to make this based on real data <laughs> and based on you know an understanding of what the outcome is what your goal is is definitely important uh, for sure yeah totally anyway well, I just was thinking about it that way and wanted to see if you had as well. So before we wrap up here, Johnny, let's let's pivot for a second and just talk about what what life looks like outside of work. What are the kinds of things that you spend your time doing when you're not uh, sitting at a desk at Fanatics? Oh, pretty much trying to um, most quickly impact the earth with my body. So any snowboarding, skateboarding, biking, <laughs> I, I'm super good at catching edges or going over so literally falling down. Yeah, basically. Oh, I thought you were going to say like driving the biggest SUVs you could find, but, but now I get it. Now I get it. Oh man, that was golden. And you've been making a lot of cookies lately, haven't you? Yeah, I got a stand mixer and I have to say that baking without the work is just the most amazing thing. I, I don't know why <laughs> everybody isn't like 800 pounds because I've been eating probably 20 cookies a day for the past couple of weeks and it's amazing. But you, still, you still have to pour all the, the, you have to still have to measure everything out and pour it in. It's just the stand mixer does oh. all the rest. Is that, I, I've never used a stand mixer, so I have no idea what I'm missing you out You need on. one of those fully automatic cookie makers, like those fully automatic coffee machines, right? You pour in the ingredients <laughs> yes. and it just does the rest. Can you buy like already made cookie mix and just put it in the mixer and then eat them? Or I guess maybe they're already mixed. So that sort of ruins the point. I feel like Kendall's missing the point here, but you know. <laughs> yeah it's it's one of those things where uh, like i i think um 
Randall, I, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, Kutnik? Kutnik? Yeah. Um, he, he made some comment about how safe it is to cook and why engineers really love to to be in kitchens because like bananas won't be deprecated and tomatoes won't be in need of updating and like you can get flavors a little bit off and feel still feel very satisfied with the outcome Mm -hmm. and it's just this awesome thing where like I used to do a lot of art and I just feel terrible at art I can make something with butter and sugar and it doesn't matter if like it comes out all flat and droopy. Like it's still, still gonna hit all the right taste from it. That is, yeah. How could it go wrong? Really, just you know. I agree with you. I think cooking is should be far less daunting than people tend to make it. We have in their to. Minds. We have to find out what the butter and sugar is of leadership. Maybe it's just owning enough socks. Giving a shit. <laughs> that's, I'm that's actually. It. Yeah, that that's actually the thing that I'm. I'm finding like literally since last night, I was having a discussion with my best friend about how I take lack of signal and just immediately transform it into, I must be doing a terrible job. And I started writing down things that I'm proud of. And really it is giving a shit about people is going to be my butter and sugar. And like, have I done right by my people this week? Awesome. I'm doing okay. (laughs) Giving a shit about my people is going to be my butter and sugar. That's going to have to be a pull quote for this, for sure. Hell yeah. <laughs> okay, so um, we definitely are coming up at the at the top of the hour here, but uh, I wanted to know uh, where people can find you on the internet. So they can find me on Twitter at Johnny underscore Sheely. Cool, and I'll put that in the show notes. Thanks so much for being with us, Johnny. Yeah, thanks, thanks very much. All. We had some awesome. deep convos.